Oftentimes, they would con a, a chief like in Africa into giving away land based on promises that they would never fulfill. Or in some case, the, the chief was you know easily bought off with alcohol or something. I mean, that happened with the Native Americans. And like in Iran, you know, they had a corrupt leader like the Shah, and they just basically bribed him a small amount. He sold out his own people and gave them the land or access to the oil for almost nothing. This is Monica Perez, and our returning guest today is Jeremy Kuzmarov, author of four books on U.S. foreign policy, including The Russians Are Coming Again, The First Cold War as Tragedy, The Second as Farce. He is the managing editor of Covert Magaz Action Magazine, where he and his team are keeping us surprised of the real stories behind the biggest events of the day. And as much as I respect Jeremy and his work, however, our ideologies are completely different. Jeremy thinks government is legit, and I've given up on the state completely. But in a post-ideological world of corruption and collusion, people of principle like Jeremy and me can still find common ground. So thanks for coming back, Jeremy. How are you? Oh, pretty good. It's my pleasure to be here. I love your articles. So. We usually talk once a month, and I've been busy, and so we skipped last month, but you're, it's too much. It's just too much. And this past few months, like, you had so many great articles. They're so thorough. I always think I can whip through, like, four or five in an hour, but I can't. They really take some time and attention. So I tried to cull it down to a few that I found most interesting, and in the case of the first article I want to talk about, relevant to an experience I had recently. Here's the title of the article that you wrote. The Pentagon has been recolonizing university campuses. Why aren't more students protesting? So I have to tell you, I was looking at campuses with my son last year, and he was considering engineering, architecture, mechanical engineering, stuff like that. We went to visit a bunch of schools, and one of them was Olin do you ever hear of Olin? It's a it's uh, on the back of Brandeis, I think, or Bodoin. Shoot, I don't even remember. Oh, Brandeis, yeah, because I went to Brandeis in Massachusetts. Yeah, is Olin behind you? Oh, uh, Olin Hall. No, Olin Olin University. Let me oh, let me. Olin University. It's uh, associated. Not, there, I remember there was an Olin Hall. That that was one of the main buildings in Brandeis, if if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it might be. Um, I'm going to look it up. It says that they collaborate with Babson, Wellesley, and Brandeis. Yeah, they're all around the same area. Of, uh, they're in the outskirts of Boston. Yeah, and it shouldn't, and I was thinking, it shouldn't be called a university, and I think it isn't. It's a, just a college. So a university is a body of colleges, and this is just a college. So we went there, and we were kind of horrified. Like, I, I don't mean to throw anybody or anything under the bus, but we were looking around, and there were pictures. There was a lot of, like, rainbows. There was, uh, we were really surprised to see, like, free Palestine or some stuff like that. Like, that was really surprising. And then my son was like, look at that picture. And it's people with, you know, they're, like, rainbow bandanas standing in front of a drone and he's like look at that drone like that drone has only one purpose and it's to kill people like that's i mean it just was so on the same bulletin board as you know smiling kittens we were just shocked and uh it was surreal and and then we were told or investigated a little bit that it was established by a defense company i think 
Anyway, it was really a, a weird experience. And I started to realize that engineering and even tech, I mean, big tech is a sister of the defense industry, but the engineering stuff all kind of, you could see what the career path was. And he actually changed majors, although he's doing neuroscience. And I feel like that's just a stepping stone to AI anyway. Like there's, you know, it's not, it's not to help people, <laughs> you know, adjust. It's, it's really to apply it to like science and research. So I wanted to talk about that with you. And I had some specifics about the article that you wrote, but why did this get on your radar right at this time? Well, uh, I attended a webinar um, where that was under discussion, but I think it's a really important topic. And uh, you know, like you, I've had my experience in higher education. In fact, I worked for about 14 years in higher education and I was a graduate student. So I witnessed firsthand some of what they're discussing. And I'd also done some research on um, the Vietnam War era and the protest against the military industrial complex on campus during the Vietnam War. So uh, and I think that was a, an era where the students, you know, said enough is enough. And I guess they're, they're more coordinated. I think a lot of students today may be alienated or isolated and they're not involved in political activism of any kind in that era. I think because they had the draft hovering over them, uh, their own lives were directly affected and you had this mass movement that developed, uh, that, you know, unfortunately had never been rekindled, but, um, that movement, you know, focused uh, and had success in removing a lot of the military-related research uh, from university campuses. But then it came back in the 80s, and especially since the declaration of the war on terror uh, in 2001. So it's funny because my mother always said that about the draft. She said the reason it was a big problem is that it was a draft and it got people off the couch. And she objected to the draft after that. But it's funny because that would be a, a really maybe a genuinely unintended consequence of removing the draft is to keep people from really being connected to what our government is doing with our money to other people. And I've heard, you know, quote, statesmen or whatever, these think tank guys saying that that if they take that element out of it, if people like feeling it real, their own children being hurt. I, I think they were talking about limiting collateral damage, although obviously they tolerate collateral damage, but they like the idea of drones. They like the idea of taking it not only away from a draft, but from actual soldiers being the ones in the field doing that. And the more they get removed from that, the less people will care was what I heard this guy say in a really intellectual way, you know, which makes it, you know, softens the blow. I think that's absolutely right. Yeah. They found ways to wage war without the human you know, manpower so that they can prevent a reoccurrence of what occurred in the sixties. And unfortunately a generation of youth have kind of tuned out because their own lives are not at stake. Uh, you know, the military recruits for more, you know, working class, uh, kids or, you know, minority groups and uh, middle and upper class are kind of insulated from it. They don't have to join unless they want to uh, pursue a career in the military. And so unfortunately they tune out and all these wars are in many ways carbon copies of Vietnam you know, as far as the political dynamic. And the U.S. has often been on the wrong side, as we discussed on this show, or they, you know, they've gone behaving like an imperialistic power, like in Vietnam. They've devastated countries like in Vietnam. But uh, since you know, there are very few Americans actually doing the fighting, and those are from a certain sector of society, 
middle the middle upper class just tune out and go about their lives. And I think the main campus activism now is on these cultural issues and race and gender. Uh, yeah, and that's that so true. Polarizing, yeah. Yeah, the cultural, the identity stuff definitely is a distraction yeah. and, and an abstraction from... Yeah, you know. and also many of the courses... Uh, and yeah, you know, my, my mom would know this well because she was, you know, I was job searching for like 10 years, uh, trying to get a job. And my field was American foreign policy history and diplomatic history. And, you know, my mom was helping me and every job was always for a, a professor of race relations or race history or gender, you know, wow. gender studies. And there are almost no jobs in the field of uh, foreign relations. And, and so I think more and more courses just focus on these race and gender issues. And there's so much that uh, students are not learning about. And it's, and it's kind of like, I mean, I almost feels like a manufactured industry, like the race and gender stuff. Whereas this is a defense industry that deals in death i mean it's it's real money it's real economy it employs people it causes real damage in the real world and they take our the productivity of our labor and funnel it into these geopolitical imperialist aims i mean that to me is something that that whether you do the other stuff or not it, you it should not be neglected and there's an element of race and gender in there. We were looking, so my son and I kind of didn't let this go. We're digging in a little bit and talked about the demographics of the soldier and um, the actual fighting man. And we looked in, in the 60s during the Vietnam War, 88% of the soldiers uh, from, if I recall correctly, uh, were white males. And now that I think just... Uh, white soldiers alone is 50%. And now it's a lot of females too. So you have uh, a change in demographic and to the extent that you have these people joining. And I do think it's really more of a, of a economic thing it just happens that race correlates with economic um, strata that it's, I, I thought of it as like the priest class. So we were, we drove past a recruiting office on our, the main street of our, uh, we never saw this before. I think it was Air Force and outside on the sidewalk, this is the main street of the town. Um, outside on the sidewalk was a bunch of obviously young recruits. I think it must have been graduation day because it's June or May. And they were all lined up. And I noticed, we noticed they were all Hispanic and they were all like around 18 years old. And my son was like, what's that all about? I said, oh, I guess it's graduation day. But I saw then that it it made me feel like the way when you read medieval history, the priests. So they would take, like if you had too many boys or if you were poor or whatever, you would send your boys to the church. And even now at my church, you get people from really poor countries as priests and you can tell they were super intellectual, but they were probably very poor and they got kind of, you know, quote, <laughs> lifted out or rescued by the church. And I feel like there's some of that in the military, too. So you're really not going to get complaints because they're they're volunteering and they're doing it to kind of secure a job and and feel like there's a place and there's that cultural element. There's indoctrination in the schools as well. Yeah, and it gets uh, my point before, you know, with regard to the colleges, is they don't want any pushback against the military, so they don't want students learning about the history of U.S. military operation yes. in the Third World and how they, you know, stole Mexico. And I mean, 
that was one of the worst uh, uh, wars, the uh, Mexican-American War. What year was that? That was in the 1840s. I think uh, you know Ulysses Grant was one of the commanders and said it was the most unjust war in history. Wow. And you know many massacres, just like the Vietnam War. So you know, as the Korean War was basically a replica of the Vietnam. That's war. what MacArthur said about that knee deep in blood, basically, right? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I mean, I think they don't want students learning about that history and questioning what it's all about and the continuity and policy today. And they want to cling to this illusion that America, this multicultural and diverse society, uh, when really, yeah, they're just recruiting minority to fight the dirty wars that the middle and upper class don't want to fight and kind of tune out because they don't have to pay attention. They can just go about, you know, their happy lives and, you know, trying to uh, make as much money they can. Uh, and these, you know, Hispanic can do the fighting, uh, but they, they cultivate this illusion of, you know, diversity and society. And I think they suppress the class element. Like, you know, they're only teaching course about race and gender and not about, you know, class war. Cause I got into trouble for teaching a, a radical labor history and groups that, you know, fought back against the capitalist class. And I don't think they're interested in those kind of courses or that history, just like they're not interested in, promoting the history of the U.S. military empire and its underside. Uh, uh, so, yeah, I think, you know, universities are very, very political, have become very politicized. And uh, I think there's an agenda that's tied with the uh, agenda of the uh, elites in the Democratic Party who control a lot of the universities. Uh, a lot of the university administrators are uh, Democrats, but they're like conservative Democrats of the kind of Hillary Clinton type. And they don't challenge, you know, the, the warfare state or really the class structure of society. And they want to feel good about themselves, maybe by championing black right. But I think they also uh, want to create a schism at the elite level. The top level, I think they want to create a race divide. They, they reinforce these racial uh, element uh, when some of it is really class. You know, a lot of conflicts in U.S. history are not simply about race, but also about class. But they suppress that and they make everything about race and they want to anger, I think, a sector of the white electorate. Um, and they push things like reparations that are kind of unrealistic policy agenda. And divisive. The black community, yeah. I think it's divide and conquer. They don't want people coming together, you know, middle class, working class people unifying and forming a, a political movement for more progressive government that would not wage endless wars. And that would adopt, you know, social uh, programs for the benefit of everybody. That's what they don't want. They want to sustain the rule of the 1%. So they divide and conquer and they push this uh, race theory uh, to divide people because that's inflammatory. Uh, and not to say that there shouldn't be some you know, course. I mean, there obviously is a history of racism in America and that, that should be pointed out, but. It doesn't have to be the, and it's good to have courses on that, but it shouldn't be the sole focus of study. And they overemphasize that as my point. And they deliberately create divisions uh, between black and white. So I have a few things. I, um, so my, my mother is saying about the draft, but my father used to say about research, he did not like the government funding research at all. And I remember reading, uh, and he just said it was not a legitimate function of government, which people can argue. However, the it's very clear who uh, what it, how it works. And I think it was a book uh, novel called Next by Michael Crichton. I think where he talks about how 
the government funds the research on the college campuses, and then the corporations will often own the patents or benefit from that, and the public doesn't actually get to access that, doesn't enter the public domain. I think Aaron Schwartz may have been onto that, uh, if that was that um, guy's name who supposedly killed himself after hacking into maybe MIT's computer. I can't remember. So uh, then, then, but your point about then wanting to or being able to influence the curriculum really reminds me of big pharma buying up commercials on tv like they can help shape the propaganda shape the ideals and the ideas because they're putting money into the system in both cases it frustrates me because the government contributes to who obviously big pharma um subsidizing vaccine purchases and stuff like that and and obviously the defense stuff goes straight from the government to the private sector but what bothers me uh, about your saying that they would not allow you to teach this radical labor history, so you and I have a different ideology of what is the proper role of government. But And what bothers me is when people talk about injustices, robber barons, and the history of capitalism in this country and labor— they often confuse the ideology or the system itself with the injustices. So when you look at the robber barons, you look at Rockefeller, he didn't just respect mom and pop entrepreneurship and pay arm's length for people's businesses that he wanted to roll up into his own. He wanted to have a monopoly. And uh, this happens in every industry. The company, you know, some big guy wants to have a monopoly and there's some guy out there who has a little business who just wants to have that business. He doesn't want to sell. He doesn't care about the money. He likes the business. He's doing it for uh, whatever reason. And there are numerous stories in this history of those kind of guys getting intimidated, defrauded. Same thing with labor unions, getting um, you know, met with violence. These guys manipulate the legislative process in an unsavory way. So I, I, what annoys me is that the facts of, and these themes, even if they are taught, they're also taught in a way that will immediately turn off anyone who doesn't share an underlying ideology about the solution. And that I think is also a bit of a, a weapon and quite divisive. Yeah, and yeah, and when I was teaching those topics, yeah, I would emph I mean, we'd look at it, it's obvious. Like one book we read on the Gilded Age in one of my courses was called Railroaded, and he shows how, I mean, they used the government, I mean, the government basically was serving their interest, the interests of these you know, large, uh, wealthy railroad owners, whether it was bailouts, whether it was help in suppressing strikes. I mean, they, were the they cultivated very close relations with the government. And I mean, students can see how the government served the interests of the one percent, uh, and you know they're really exploiting or badly abusing uh, working people, and that's kind of a subversive message because they can see that in the present day. And yeah, it's not really a matter of ideology, as you say. I mean, you could be on the left, you could have a libertarian view, and you'd be equally outraged because for a libertarian view, you know, the the government shouldn't be uh, intervening in the economy to benefit a public plutocrats and that's what occurred many times in history and in the gilded age uh, certainly and there are some rich studies to draw on that are very well detailed like this book uh railroad is about the railroad barons during the gilded age so but i, I think that kind of material again is what the university administrators or people you know owners don't want students thinking critically about how the economy is structured in that way 
and the hypocrisy of the rhetoric of many political figures, uh, including those who want to cut social program, yet they're very happy for government intervention on behalf of their own interests. Uh, so you can you know, really start to see the hypocrisy of government leaders. And I think that's what they don't want, uh, just like what we were discussing about the military, military interventions. And related to my article, they're more and more transforming the campuses away from places of critical thinking and places to debate, like, like we're doing on this show, you know, debating. And, and there may be different visions and views, but uh, we can have very healthy debates. And uh, we may agree on a lot of things. We might disagree on some, but it's a very healthy exchange. And that ideally would occur in universities, uh, but it's not anymore. They're uh, pushing, you know, courses, uh, you know, tech, more like technical training to benefit the military industrial complex. And they're kind of grooming students for work in that area. Like uh, uh, the article I wrote had a, a focus on Georgia Tech, and it's like an adjunct of Lockheed Martin. And like there's Lockheed Martin Day on the campus, and <laughs> yeah. you know, they're studying uh, so they could become engineers and build better airplanes for Lockheed Martin, not debate uh, you know, uh, injustices in the past and how to move forward with a more just economy like we're trying to do on this show or how we can develop a more just society where we don't wage wars and drone people uh, in the Middle East constantly and terrorize them. Uh, that should be debated on the campus. How could we exist uh, with the Middle East without having to drone them every day? But those debates are no longer occurring because the course is just te technical skill. They're cutting all the humanities and they're suppressing courses on U.S. foreign policy history. And uh, they're just, uh, you know, uh, pushing uh, technical training and the military basically taking over a lot of the campuses and using it for its own purpose and funding research and hypersonic missiles and the AI. And, you know, graduate students are working on these kind of projects. And it's a very different campus from from the, the 60s uh, where students would read philosophy and history and have the debates and then protest the injustices. It's not a surprise we're seeing no more protests on these superficial issues or manufactured cultural wars. Do you, have you ever heard the name Charlotte Ezerbit? Ezerbite? No. All right. So she, her father was a member of Skull and Bones, and she got the, she's famous because Alex Jones did extensive interviews with her, which were really, really interesting. It's during that phase where he was really establishing his credibility, and he did some great, great stuff on weather control on, on uh, Bohemian Grove. And she was one of them. And uh, um, how does that tie in with Anthony Sutton? I cannot remember. Um, and I believe she was also a, like in the Department of Education, may even have been the Education Secretary under Reagan. But she released the book of the of the Skull and Bones members' names, which her father received. So she was uh, like a hero for the conspiracy community. But she was saying how STEM is a plot against uh, civil society because it eliminates STEM like science tech, um, is it science tech, is it tech, engineering and math. And sometimes people put steam in there, put art in there. And she was saying that it's just making, it's cutting out the, the rhetoric portion of the education. It gives you information. It gives you critical thinking, but it doesn't allow you to persuade or to recognize when you're being pers persuaded. It's not the liberal arts which were the arts that were permitted only to the free men, liberal arts in the Greek era and the Roman era, because it would empower them to understand man's place in society. And so to your point, 
that would dovetail with what she was saying, that they don't want you to understand those things. That's another angle there. I find that very interesting. But I also want to point out that I was just in Austin. I always wanted to, my husband's from Texas. All my children were born in Texas. We got married in Austin. We always wanted to retire to Austin. And we have friends there. And I was there this weekend for a wedding. And every time I've been there in the past couple of years, it's just transformed so much. They literally intentionally imported homelessness. There are these scooters all over the place. They do um, a World Economic Forum. It's an incubator for some of the one of their programs of like how to get youth involved in health. But I mean, I'm not even going to start with all of the stuff that they do there. But I remember I, I just I dug into it because it was clear that just like Georgia was totally infiltrated by Hollywood because they had tax credits there. I was trying to figure out how did Austin get like they're being transformed culturally because tech has invaded. You cannot drive down the street. There's an Apple thing. There's a Google thing. There's, I mean, really, really huge tech places. And I dug in and I found that the University of Texas, I believe it was like in the 80s or 90s, did um, a really uh, well-funded tech incubator. And I kept thinking, why would UT, was that just, they thought they were doing good for society? Maybe, like, why did UT decide to build a tech incubator? And I had an aha moment when I was reading your article because I was like, oh, it's defense. It's because tech is an offshoot of defense. And in your article, like with even to AI and all that, it just all, I, I think I understand now. Yeah, I think so. And, and we're kind of losing our humanity. I mean, you know, I'm not a technophobe or against technological uh, innovation. And, and I think that that is one purpose of the university you know, to, to teach course in science. And it's going to be at the cutting edge. But I think uh, somehow we kind of, you know, come detached from humanity. I mean, it's become we, we, we've come to be, I guess, uh, just so consumed by technology and it's kind of insulated us from the human uh, affairs. And I think young people are so into their, uh, phone and tablets and internet, and they don't even interact well with their own peers, let alone adults. Uh, so it seems to all fit together and, and, and the society is becoming more harsh and like, uh, related to what we're discussing, you know, these social justice issues are just get worse and worse, whether it's just endless wars, where it's the harsh, criminal justice system here, the treatment of the homeless or the uh, terrible poverty and huge inc growing inequality. And there's such a callousness. And so it all seems to fit together. And, and the universities are just, yeah, creating these like, uh, you know, I don't know. Yeah. With the move toward AI, yes. and it's, just, it's cut off from humanity. The like, AI thing. So AI is just, uh, exploded onto the scene in the past couple of months, just exploded. Like it's everywhere now. It's like, you can talk about it openly. Of course, it's right around the corner. There's no stopping it. And again, reading your article, I'm thinking, because I was wondering, because they've had that same tech that they talk about AI wise, like Microsoft has talked about that before. They've had it. They just didn't release it. And then the current narrative is that chat GPT or whatever came out and then everybody had to kind of rush to release their products, even though they had been holding back because it cannibalizes some of their other um, systems. But for me, I do see the continuum of big tech and big defense and that there are strategies that happen behind the scenes. And I wouldn't be surprised if they just, they, what they, that AI seems to be more 
a lot of this tech is it comes from and is part and parcel of the Defense Department. And if they want to bring this stuff out, if they want to reveal it to the world, it has to they have to soften us up. I think it goes hand in hand. I wouldn't be surprised if the timing of all that is related to the timing of when they want to release it. Uh, from a defense perspective, I have two more things. You can respond to that. And then the other two articles I have about coups and Lithuania dovetail with all of this as well. One is that people call the social justice warriors are now are not all the things that you just rattled off as what you consider to be social justice. Those people who call themselves social justice warriors or are labeled as such are just talking about identity and and actually deliberately disconnecting it with social status, um, health, happiness, uh, you know, their necessities being met. It's just simply about race and ethnicity, simply like even if you're an upper middle class Hispanic you're you're checking the same box as somebody who really is trying to you know get over some serious barriers language barriers and family barriers in the inner city uh, and I have to just mention that Johns Hopkins received in your article $828 million in grants from the Department of Defense in 2017 alone billion dollars alone in one year almost wow wow that's a lot yeah and um... Uh, and I think my point is that uh, uh, about technology is that somehow uh, people are being consumed with the technology and they're losing their social solidarity as all these pro uh, problems intensify and cruelty of society. Uh, and as far as the military, uh, uh, yeah, it's just obscene the amount of money. You know? And don't forget the <coughs> the federal government you know, has slashed funding for public education over the last generation so these universities are money starved uh and you know they're they're offsetting in that way although i think a lot of it is just greed as well i mean if you if you visit some of these campuses like you have i mean there are these majestic buildings and it's not really necessary you know i mean the heart university is really about uh you know education educating students and they've got to work hard and they've got to be motivated they shouldn't be living in you know it's opulence. Yeah. We build these gyms. Yeah. And, you know, it's like a luxury uh, club. I don't even want my kids exposed to that. Yeah. They, they should be, there should be the incentive to work hard. They, they should be living in austere conditions. I mean, they have fun at that age interacting with each other. They don't need these uh, plush gym or, you know, fancy condo where they put them up. And, and it sends the wrong message, too. I mean, you know, you got to start at the bottom and work your way up. I mean, <laughs> and true. when you're starting, and you know, a lot of these students, I mean, I was a college professor. I mean, call a spade a spade. They don't work very hard a lot of them. They party, <laughs> they enjoy the good life. And they're not serious students. Uh, you know, there's a percentage that is, but uh, you know, a lot are not. And I don't think the university encourages that when they uh, set up these fancy dorms. You know, and they, they invest so much in like the social life of the campus and they lose sight of what the university is about. And they're also paying the faculty that are uh, garbage. You know, they pay them extremely low and now about 70% are adjuncts. They're not even paying them a living wage. And they're, they're creating a class of, of impoverished people who are uh, very dedicated and, and believe in their craft and their mission to educate young people. And they're uh, treated horribly while they pay these administrators uh, six-figure, sometimes seven-figure salaries. 
just replicating the structure in corporate America that everybody mocks where the CEO gets uh, (laughs) so much money and the regular workers get almost nothing. And this is a place supposed to be dedicated to creating a better society and teaching students to do the right thing. So the the, the level of hypocrisy and corruption in these universities, I, I hope some people read the article and prompt more exposés and maybe a movement against this corruption, uh, just like in uh, other aspects of our society. But this is an important one that has become totally corrupted and uh, some venal people are, are running running the show now. I, I think one of the reasons, if not the sole reason, that those some of those guys at the top get the big, big bucks is probably their fundraising connections and prowesses. So, prowess. So you said that a lot of these universities are cash starved. However, a lot of them have obscene endowments, obscene endowments like Princeton and Harvard. Like these are some of the biggest hedge funds in the world and they're just university endowments. And I, I read an article uh, a long, maybe 10 years ago and in a, in a, like the doom and gloom report by Mark Faber. It was, he's, I, really enjoyed his stuff, but the thing is super expensive. So I stopped getting it. But he used to give like a really good article blast from the past, whatever. And one of them was old, like a hundred years old or something. And it was a, a Harvard, you know, dignitary, you know, on the board or whatever, really lamenting how the current president had totally sold out the the school to get money and that it was just a terrible president to set. And he was worried that it was going to turn Harvard down to the wrong path. And you can just see how all the universities, you know, right off the top of my head, uh, made that choice. It's just it's about the money. And and I mean, forget integrity. And if you do have some kind of integrity, I mean, they'll come after your accreditation or like they'll fire, you know, probably targeted professors like yourself, I'm sure. So speaking of big money, um, I want to talk about uh, one of the other two articles I pulled. This one is an older one. I don't want to spend a ton of time on it, but it's uh, March 28th hearings provided a platform for the CIA's nice guy public face, the National Endowment for Democracy, and the violent coup plotters and regime changers that it supports. And right out of the gate in this, and so I wanted to talk about this because you're talking about, well, they care so much about identity and whatever. This is so so infuriating how the National Endowment for Democracy works and the rhetoric that these guys spew because they they target poor countries, countries with the uh, uh, people of color, like who said, like our brown brothers, whatever. They act like they're trying to save people and they're really just, you know, droning them into democracy or whatever. It's so backwards. And these very universities that people think they care about identity are the ones that are supporting the tactics that are used to oppress these people. And, and uh, one of these just really blew me away, the amount of money we were talking about. It said... Uh, um, <clears throat> Biden pledged $690 million for foreign influence operations to support democracy around the world, including by funding free media outlets in authoritarian regimes and uh, pro-democratic reformers, which is what the National Endowment for Democracy does. But I just, you know, $690 million, let's round it to a billion. I know it's a big round, but let's just say like a billion dollars, $690 million. Think about how far that would go on the ground in a poor country. I mean, think about what you could do with that if you were just simply doing like propaganda and 
and movements. And I've, I've talked to people who are come from some of these countries and they say, you know, we're, we we're told about a famine or whatever. We give a lot of money and the foreign aid goes directly to locals who are willing to work to support defined U S preferences for their policies. So it's really just not about feeding people. It's just about influencing the politics by paying off people on the ground. I just think that that, that amount of money is, is staggering. No, absolutely. And, and these are not really democratic reformers that the article points out. It's going, actually, many of them are terrorists uh, who've been charged with sedition, plotting coups, and the overthrow of their government, violent overthrow. Uh, in Venezuela, uh, Leopoldo Lopez was feted at this National Endowment for Democracy event, and he is a terrorist who triggered a, a violent uprising against the socialist government of Venezuela in the uh, early uh, 20-teens. He was involved in a coup against Hugo Chavez in 2002. He comes from an upper-class family, and he was a mayor, but he was also, I believe, investigated uh, for corruption when he was the mayor of a town uh, in Caracas. Uh, Venezuela. Uh, so these are not choir boys, but they they build them as these uh, democratic reformers. The other person was Svetlana Tikhonovskaya, featured at that event, and she was involved in trying to overthrow the Belarusian government so they could expand NATO. And her husband's some kind of YouTuber and stuff like that. Story was very fishy from the beginning. I remember. Yeah, and, and you know these guys, they have no economic. They claim to be you know revolutionary, want to uh, promote regime change. And then you ask them, they, they advance no plot, economic platform that would uplift their country or address the plight of their country. They're just basically puppets of the West and the United States. And they would, they would basically sell out their country and allow for the uh, complete exploitation and destruction of their country. And that's what has happened in cases like Ukraine, the CIA and U.S. government backed the Maidan Square protest, which was a collection of uh, many of them were neo-Nazis, and they violently overthrew the Ukrainian government, and they, they sowed the demise and destruction of their own country. They plunged their country into war. <laughs> uh, they empowered, they led to the rise of an autocratic government that has uh, banned 12 opposition parties and uh, tortured and jailed and, and carried out over terrorism into Russia. Uh, so, I mean, then there's Libya, there's Syria. I mean, the U.S. was promoting and NED was supporting these opposition elements who they claim are democratic. And some may, may have some good intention, but these movements are ultimately led and hijacked by violent, in the case of Syria and Libya, they were violent jihadist Islamic terrorists who tried to overthrow, and in the case of Libya, succeeded in overthrowing a secular nationalist leader who had transformed his 40 years in power, Libya, into the strongest economy in Africa, and he was overthrown. The country is now a failed state. You have the re-empowerment of al-Qaeda, the emergence of slavery, re-emergence of slavery in Libya, Mass number of refugees have to escape that hellhole. Then Europe becomes inundated when Europe has its own problems, and uh, they don't necessarily want you know a thousand of impoverished people descending on their shores. That's because the, their country was destroyed. <laughs> so the NED is is an evil organization that uh, creates this uh, face that they're promoting democracy and spreading goodwill when really they're supporting insurrection and regime change that leads to disaster. And many of the, the leaders they're supporting are uh, uh, the best term to describe them as uncle Tom. They're, uh, they're people who'd sell out their own country 
uh, and sell out their own people for their own fame and power. And they're the worst kind of scoundrels around. Yeah. Um, reminds me of George Soros, his own. <laughs> well, Soros is tied with that. And, and he's been part of this anti-Russia crusade. And look where it's led. Again, it's led to the destruction of, of the Ukrainian nation and the uh, death of entire generation of Ukrainian uh, and Russian youth. Uh, and, you know, it's it's potentially leading us to a world war, a nuclear war. And they're trying to promote regime change in Belarus, and, and they've tried in other countries as well in that region. And it's not about democracy. The people they support are usually not, not democratic. They're not even supported by the uh, significant numbers in their own country. So that in itself is problematic. You claim to be supporting democracy and you support violent minority elements who want to overthrow the government of that country. So there's a couple of nuances here that I want to talk about. Um, Venezuela, Cuba, and North Korea. I don't, I don't know anybody who's from North Korea, but I do know people who are from or visited uh, Venezuela and Cuba recently. And the living standards are abysmal. They're really, from what I understand, now I could be wrong because I haven't been there and I know there's propaganda on both sides, but it seems to me that they just, they're like, isn't even enough to eat. And I wonder, and I, I look at that, you could, people will point, especially to North Korea and say, look at the difference between North Korea and South Korea. It's the ideology. It's just the ideology or it's the dictator or whatever. I will look at North Korea and South Korea and say, South Korea was promoted by the West and North Korea, there are sanctions against it. So you could just say, if you really believe in free markets, then exchange with those people because China allegedly had the same ideology and because it was allowed to trade and actually gave most favorable nation trading status, it it is overtaking us economically. I don't think you can say that it's a it's um uh, an indictment of the system, although I, I, I do fully believe in free markets, but I, you know, like that's kind of difficult to say to, you know, to argue with because Venezuela and Cuba are in, in terrible situation. Do you think it's because of, um, sanctions? Do you think that they are engaged in self-determination or is there a dictatorial class? And then there's our infiltration. And then there's the legitimate protesters like in Belarus who our girl, um, undermined, like, how do you think it really works? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah. I, you know, I don't have all the answers from my point of view. Yeah. I, I think the sanctions, I mean, you have to look at the history of those countries uh, most experienced colonization, you know, if you look at North Korea and Korea, they had been colonized by Japan and, uh, <laughs> uh, the people fought for their independence first from Japanese colonialism. And then the United States came in after world war II and imposed a violent regime in South Korea that massacred many of its own population. And the leader of North Korea, you know, Kim Il-sung had fought against the Japanese in Manchuria and was considered a legitimate nationalist leader. And he was promoting a philosophy of, <coughs> of Juche or like more self-autonomy in their econ economy and industrialization. Uh, and, you know, they, they weren't allowed to evolve in a natural way. They had to contend with the Korean War. The U.S. destroyed North Korea. They bombed it literally back to the Stone Age with more that's what MacArthur said. Like he basically couldn't sleep at night. Like he never saw anything like that. MacArthur, <laughs> who, yeah, who said, like, like bragging about yeah, it. I've seen a lot. And I mean, you know, how could any country, you know, in fact, it was quite remarkable how North Korea rebuilt its country. And for many years, they were actually ahead of South Korea. 
And then you had the Vietnam War. You know, as you point out, I think you make a very good point that um, South Korea's uh, boom was artificial. You know, they had the support of the United States. They had millions and billions of dollars of U.S. aid. And then they had the Vietnam War. You know, Korea, South Korea produced a lot of the weapon and the Mitsubishi. Uh, forget, the Korean uh, car manufacturer was producing a lot of military equipment uh, and, and military vehicles used in Vietnam. And, um, you know, uh, uh, even Park Chung-hee, who was a leader at that time, said, the Vietnam War saved us. You know, it was a miracle. I mean, it was a catastrophe for humanity. So it's not exactly a moral country <laughs> that their economic boom was because of uh, you know a, a horrible catastrophe that was resulted in the destruction of Vietnam. And they just railroaded that leader, the president they had, put her in jail. And I'm uh, there's no doubt in my mind. I mean, I'd be very surprised if she was guilty of anything, but probably not yeah, being his daughter, yeah. not being a good. Yeah, and you know, South Korea was dictatorship for many, many years. Then they did have a, a democratic movement, uh, and there was an opening. You know, North Korea struggled after the, uh, you know, their trading partners collapsed. You know, the Soviet Union and Communist China, you know, changed its course. <laughs> especially hard hit by the collapse of the Soviet Union, and then there were some famines, natural uh, because of the weather pattern in North Korea in the '90s. So. You know, there are a lot of external factors as to why their economy has struggled. Uh, and now we've had a few reports in our magazine that they are doing a lot better. You know, the capital is booming. Uh, so, you know, it's it's not entirely black and white. And I, I mean, they're not a pure communist system either. They have certain hybrid elements of their economy. You know, there are a lot of entrepreneurs there as well. So I think the media often mischaracterizes uh, North Korea and, and distorts the nature of the conflict. Uh, and differences between the two society and what accounts for the growth in the South. And I think he made strong points. Uh, and then, you know, you could look at Venezuela. I mean, uh, their history, I mean, their major resource was oil and they had, you know, in South America, you know, Spanish colonization. And then you had American oil company basically dominated their economy. So, I mean, essential, uh, you know, through the eighties and nineties and, <coughs> You know, the Washington, the, the Washington consensus, like the United States was pushing a neoliberal economic model, you know, slashing uh, public services um, and, you know, tightening the budget and the debt. And that didn't work very well for them. It led to an uprising. And, you know, Ch and Chavez was the leader of the uprising in the in the 90s. And he, he won many elections. And I mean, one of his main platforms was for Venezuela to take control over their natural resources because you had foreign oil companies dominating the economy and, and the wealth was coming out. So he was trying to put it back under national control. And that's similar to what you had in Libya, similar in North Korea, Cuba, all these countries. You know, Cuba has its own history with the United States constant uh, you know, support, uh, you know, invasions in the early 20th century and then. You know, the Castro movement was a reaction to that. And he was promoting you know, land reform and also, you know, more uh, local control over the industry uh, that Cuba had and, and economic resources. And the U.S. waged an economic war on Cuba since the Cuban Revolution of 1959. But, you know, I mean, there have been studies, you know, comparing like Cuba with Haiti. You know, I think the worst poverty you'll find in, in uh, South America is in Haiti. And, you know, that adopted yes. the complete opposite economic model of Cuba. And that was a weak country that um, was prey to uh, U.S. 
imperial exploitation and economic exploitation, and other Central American countries uh, oh, yeah, have that's had true. the same. So, um, you know, a country like Nicaragua is doing better under Ortega, who is a more left-wing leader, although, again, you have a kind of hybrid system. And, um, but El Salvador, uh, Guatemala, I mean, places that cooperate with us have terrible yeah, gang often do wars. Yeah. yeah, so and Cuba has a very good medical system, and they even sent their doctors uh, abroad, and they have you know free health care. So I don't know. You know, you have to ask people in the region. There's a lot of support for the Cuban Revolution in South America and in in Central America because of the history. And there are problems with the leaders, I agree, in, in both those countries. But just taking from a libertarian perspective or um, someone who respects property rights, if you if in Iran or Venezuela, Iran in the 50s, whatever, when when socialist leaders wanted to, quote, nationalize the oil fields or something like that. As a libertarian, what what we look at, you look at it like episodically. You look at it just that one incident and say, well, Chevron or Aramco, they bought that. You know, they bought the rights to that property, that oil, that land, whatever. They have those rights. You can't just take it away from them. That's taking their assets. But I would go back a step and say, from whom did they buy that? Did they actually buy um, the way they do it in Oklahoma, where they find the people are actually living on the land and they lease it from them, and um, or they actually buy it from them, or they found it on their own land, or did they use a government that did not respect the private property rights of the people who are actually dwelling? So you can look at you know the socialist point of view or community. Of play I always think it's like Plato. You can look at the country as the unit you know, that owns and controls, or you can look at the individual as the unit that owns and controls. But in this case, you're saying I associated with, I transacted with the country as a unit, and now I claim individual property rights, and they're trying to take it away. So I just feel like there is a little contradiction in there. And I, I don't know what they would do. I mean, I don't know what would, what they would do to, to right the wrong of uh, who knows even how much Aramco paid for it, or Chevron or whatever. Yeah, that's that's a really great point you make. Uh, and yeah, often they con them and trick them. You know, I studied like colonial history and uh, oftentimes they would con a, a chief like in Africa into giving away land based on promises that they would never fulfill. Or in some case, the, the chief was you know easily bought off with alcohol or something. I mean, that happened with the Native Americans. Uh but often, yeah, it was in like in Iran, you know, the sh they had a corrupt leader like the Shah and they just basically bribed him a small amount. He sold out his own people and gave them the land or access to the oil for almost nothing. And, you know, even in Oklahoma, they uh, there's a book and they're making a movie, uh, something, The Flower Moon. It shows how they, they actually murdered all the Native Americans were on the land with oh. the oil. So they just started killing them. Oh, that them makes me want to so cry. They could take that See, line. I only know the people when I lived in Texas who the super rich Okies would come down, you know, real hayseeds. It was, it was funny. And they were super sweet people, but they were loaded <laughs> because they were getting these leases. Yeah. But yeah. that's, I didn't so think about I, I the think people who were there before that. that. Yeah. You value private property, yeah. but somebody stole that land to make it theirs or tricked them. Or he used the government to coerce or, or just uh, hoodwink his own people. So, And then these huge corporations. I mean, if you're living in a country and you have a huge foreign corporation who owns your major resources and assets and making killing and you're poor, you're not going to be happy. And that, that's a source of a lot of 
revolutions and a lot of the uh, you know political strength of some of these movements we're discussing. So that should be better understood, whether it's a Cuban uh, revolutionary North Korean regime or uh, the Venezuelan current Venezuelan government. So the one last thing from this article that I wanted to point out, um, it's, it's not only how the National Endowment for Democracy encourages these, um, whatever, artificial rebellions, really, or highly curated protests, but just uh, also promote regime change wholesale. Uh, so one of the part people you quoted was James Reich, I'm going to say, R-I-S-C-H, a Republican from Idaho and ranking member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, who claimed in his remarks that when the U.S. retreats, the rest of the world suffers. And you say he referred both to Afghanistan, which is now under Taliban rule, and Taiwan, which Reich fears may soon be taken over by China. And I, I would like to say, I mean... Those examples, Afghanistan specifically, are perfect uh, demonstrations of why you really can't get involved. I mean, we were there for 20 years. The oh, there, It went back to the way it was. Uh, he's suggesting worldwide imperialism as the only solution to whatever problem it is he thinks that would solve. And Afghanistan is just a prime example. Were we supposed to never, ever leave? Yeah, exactly. The examples he gives undercuts his claim <laughs> because the U.S. ruined Afghanistan. I mean, even going back to the 70s and 80s, you know, as Big New Brzezinski admitted that the U.S. strategy in the 70s was yes. to induce a Soviet invasion, to arm the most extreme jihadist Islamic elements, to undermine a socialist revolution that had taken place there and induce a Soviet invasion to give them their Vietnam War and bring down the Soviet Empire. So, I mean, the ruin of Afghanistan started, you know, Afghanistan was a great country in the 70s, and then it was ruined oh. by the Soviet invasion. It was totally secular. It was secular. You see the pictures that they just look like, just the same as the 50s, whatever. There was secular socialist government, and they were allied with Russia, and that's why we had the, um, what they called the Osama's Afghans. That's what mm -hmm. was the root of Al-Qaeda, Charlie Wilson's war. That's Osama bin Laden working yeah. for the CIA over there to radicalize Islam against the Soviet Union. That was just, what a history. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I think, Rish, it's the exact opposite. And that's why with the NED, you're dealing with, with the George Orwell-type organization where whatever they say is usually basically the opposite. <laughs> it's like twilight zone. Like, you feel kind of like chilled down your spine. <laughs> like when you hear these people talk, it's like, it's like some evil character out of the Twilight Zone movie. Yeah, peace means war. Where it's the exact opposite. <laughs> but he's somebody who's evil who's plotting all these coups and you know things all around the world. And all right. and look at the results. Yeah, just you know, pity the Afghan people that to live in a country that was just dis destroyed by forty years of war. Uh, it's so sad they had to endure that. I read an article in the 90s, and I can probably put my finger on it because I saved it, but I don't think you could search for it and find it. But it was by a, I believe it was by um, a political scientist professor who was writing this as a commission from the Defense Department or a defense company. And what he wrote was that now that the Soviet Union is gone and there's no one to turn to, they wanted to experiment with seeing if you could let a state fail. And he used Yemen as the example. 
She said, we don't have to help them. Let's just see how it shakes out if we just let them fail. Because if they could run to the Soviet Union, that would be one thing. But they can't. So let's just see if you can, you know, kind of like a fire sale. Like, don't don't buy assets that you're after in a falling market. Wait until they all go bankrupt <laughs> and then pick them off the floor. That was really how they described Yemen. And look at where Yemen is today. I, I'm going to try to identify that article. And yeah, it. I mean, the, the world really, you know. It's again the opposite of what Reich said. It's U.S. intervention that caused massive suffering in Yemen. The support for Saudi Arabia and the bombing and blockade has caused a massive biblical scale humanitarian disaster in Yemen, as well as Syria. You know, I recently attended a conference uh, that brought, uh, you know, discussing the sanctions and its impact and war in Syria. And there were Syrian doctors testifying at the biblical scale catastrophe that children are starving, there's not enough food, and that entire generation of youth has gone astray. They haven't had proper schooling, and that morals have simply broken down in society. And you know, from from their point of view, the the U.S. Uh, was supporting terrorists, a terrorist uprising in 2012, uh, 20 during the Arab Spring, and this has continued for over 10 years. And the U.S. has bombed uh, Syria extensively. There was an article in the New Yorker I read by Anand Gopal recently, doing some research, and it was describing the bombing by the United States of Raqqa. Uh, and it, Gopal reported, based on his own observation, that 80% of the city was basically destroyed, and there were, you know, photos of just the devastation. And I mean, we, you know, live a, a good life here, and you know, go uh, swimming and exercise after work. And what do these people have? They're just, they go out in the street and they're rubble everywhere. They have no electricity. Uh, very difficult for them to get any food. Uh, you know, and they, how do they make a living and support the families? And kids have no hope for the future. A lot of times their schools are canceled because they've been bombed. So they just live in a nightmare. And, you know, Syria was once also a very prosperous country until the, the U.S. got involved in supporting the Arab Spring. Uh, and, and supporting invasion, a billion dollars were put in by the Obama administration, uh, Operation Timber Sycamore, and Obama and Trump were bombing. So, I mean, let me tell uh, you a little about Syria. I am of Syrian descent. My grandmother was conceived in Damascus, born on the boat over. She, her mother died in childbirth, and after a couple of years, her father just couldn't take it, left her in an orphanage, and went back. So, I don't. We don't know that. You know, he must have, he probably had descendants after that. So I probably have second cousins over there. But I always wanted to go to Damascus because it was the oldest continuously existing city in the world, I think. I think it, it was uninterrupted since its founding. And that makes it, I, that was what I, and it, that was the lore I grew up on anyway. And I always wanted to go see Syria. But uh, so the, the, scale of human suffering is of course like the most important element of that story but there is something important about what they did in Iraq and what they do in Syria from what i can tell in actually really obliterating physical history they obliterate physical history and and to me that lays the groundwork for for rewriting um you know, I don't know what, what purpose, like I see them rewrite history all the time, but the kind of more ancient history, I think, could add some enlightenment and give people some sense of their their place in the world. And I think that just isn't going to go over with the with the new new world order. 
Yeah, that, uh, I think that's an excellent point. It's one of the saddest consequences of some of these invasions, is obliterating cultural monuments, historical monuments, and museums that have been bombed and you know, just obliterating libraries. And you know, it, it sh- it's it's a lack of respect. I mean, the United States is a uh, has a relatively short history compared to these countries have such long, rich histories, and they have no regard for them uh, and their past, and they just obliterate the place and for what purpose they're ultimately supporting some rogue groups of terrorists many of the terrorists came from outside syria and were not even of that country and what is the purpose of the u.s i mean trump said openly we're there to steal the oil i I know how greedy can you be it was pretty offensive gonna destroy entire people's history uh make their lives living hell to steal some oil when you already have oil, as we were discussing that we produce a lot of oil here in the United States. It's almost, I mean, I think it's more likely they just don't want other people to have it that, you know, gives other people power. And that's, you just don't want that, that you could live without it. And maybe we're working to live without it with all this green stuff. I always feel like the whole climate thing and the movement towards non-fossil fuels is, is again, just a geopolitical power play with the, the Middle East or the East, but I'm hoping that you can give me just a few more minutes because this last article on Palantir in Lithuania is pretty short, but I wouldn't mind. I think it might be interesting for people if you can just, you know, give us a little recap. I don't know if this is a new article, if it's top of mind for you, but Palantir is that CIA, uh, big data company and it seems to have opened uh, a little mini headquarters in Lithuania which is a country that's not been on my radar. Yeah, and this is they're involved with AI and I think uh they're very central to the war in Ukraine. They have uh you know these uh, battlefield mapping systems and uh, very uh, sophisticated surveillance technologies and I think uh they're you know setting up command centers in Lithuania to help run the war in Ukraine. And Lithuania has been very supportive of Ukraine. And Lithuania has had a strongly anti-Russian, anti-communist government uh, since the fall of the Soviet Union in the 1990s. And there's a danger that the Palantir technology will be used to enhance the repression of the Lithuanian government. And there have been a lot of political prisoners in Lithuania. They've arrested bloggers including like bloggers and journalists who challenged the events in Lithuania after the fall of the Soviet Union uh, because th- they promote the version that, you know, the Soviets came in with tanks and mowed down the nationalist protesters. But actually there's a strong body of evidence that suggests it was a prelude to what occurred in Ukraine in 2014, that it was a, basically a false flag that elements in the Ukraine and uh, Lithuanian security establishment carried out attacks on their own people uh, to make it look like the Russian soldiers were doing it so they could discredit the Russian soldiers and further their cause. And that's what occurred in Ukraine. Right. The, coup. the Maidan. They want to blame Yanukovych <sighs> for shooting his own people and let's get rid of the oppressive dictator. But actually there's evidence of these Georgian snipers who may have been tied with the CIA. And this was all set up uh, as part of the psychological warfare. And the journalists who are questioning what happened in Lithuania have been jailed. And now Palantir is, is, yeah, this, you know, surveillance technology. So this should be an outrage that, uh, you know, uh, why this kind of oppressive government could, could use this kind of software 
for more repressive purposes. And undercuts you out we're saying about the NED, the hypocrisy of the NED, because they operate in countries like Lithuania and purport to be promoting democracy. But if the U.S. government is, is selling this kind of surveillance technology, the U.S. government is not promoting democracy there, but more repression. And then again, there's the war profiteering element that Lithuania, I think, and Poland, their two countries, very central to running the war in Ukraine. And this kind of battle, you know, this technology is, is important to that. So, and it's, it's a, I guess you can put it in the category of war profiteers. But uh, Avril Hines, who is the top spy master, is head of director of national intelligence. She was a consultant for Palantir before she was appointed to her firm position. So it's a very, it's a company tied to the CIA. In fact, I believe it was founded with CIA seed money. Yes, definitely. In QTEL, the, uh, the CIA's venture capital and fund this, is this crazy. kind of Orwellian world we live in where uh, there are big brothers watching. And, I know. You know. Well, he, I'm in sight reading your article. Uh, it says... The Palantir software will combine intelligence and satellite imagery to build a map of evidence establishing the proximity of Russian equipment to crime scenes or aggregating photographs that Ukrainians have uploaded to social media and investigators see as relevant evidence. What that reminded me of was a TV show, Total Predictive Programming, but I liked it. Jim Caviezel was in it, called Person of Interest, where they have this thing, which is the machine, and it takes all sound and video, and it and it just, it's big data, just it, it absorbs it all and it can create basically a four-dimensional picture of you and your life over time. And that's how they solve crimes that are alerted to imminent crimes as kind of a pre-crime thing. So that's makes that seems connected to what you're talking about, Palantir, over in Lithuania. And then I further was thinking... What, what we do in a lot of countries, you can say whether it's um, gain-of-function research in foreign labs, bioweapons in Ukraine, if it's um, tech and surveillance stuff in uh, Israel, there was um, psychological experiments in the Soviet Union, we will benefit from experimentation and um, research and implementation in other countries that we would not allow here, even they used to do it on Indian reservations. And we benefit from that. And I wonder if this is you know, a place where they don't have the kind of scrutiny or laws that we would have on some of these surveillance and censorship issues, and they are testing out, you know, the machine in Lithuania. Yeah, that's a good point. They, they've often done that. And, you know, it's testing for use here because increasingly we have more and more censorship here, as you know. Uh, and so, and, you know, they've used the software here. They've used it to target immigrants in ICE raids, They've used police forces are using their software um, to increasingly spy on you know suspicious groups, but they they can spy on anybody really using that software. Uh, so yeah, it, it's moving more and more toward the Orwellian nightmare uh, here in the United States uh, as well as abroad. I, I would agree with you. They can you know they use these foreign countries as testing grounds uh, for some new innovation and new techniques. And, you know, remind me, there's an excellent book by Alfred McCoy uh, that goes back 100 years. I mean, technologies may change, but the <laughs> tactics of those in power don't. And his book is called Policing America's Empire, the United States, the Philippines, and the Rise of the Surveillance State. And he detailed the migration of these uh, surveillance networks and how the uh, Philippines was like a laboratory for testing new surveillance technologies of that time. 
which is more like a, a game we're all reporting system and like walkie talkies and and then you know they they then they brought that back home they used that those same technique the police forces and there were a number of officials who served in the colonial administration or colonial police force and then served in domestic police forces and one was colonel ralph van diemen who was the father of american military intelligence he was a key figure in mccoy's story so i think it, and that relates to your point about what's going on today is that they use not quite a formal U.S. colonization, but the U.S. is more of an informal empire that has a lot of influence in these foreign countries and has certain agendas. And so they're using those countries like they used uh, Philippines to test out new, new technologies, and then they'll bring that back home. Uh, and there'll probably be some officials who served in those areas who could uh, apply what they learned in overseas uh, here. And usually the police forces would use it or the government so, yeah. And you know what happens if so they're not going to like incrementally introduce it here necessarily. They're not going to work out the bugs and kinks here. Yeah. Um, the pattern I've been seeing, it started with CISPA and SOPA and it's here with the restrict act. I, I anticipate. So CISPA and SOPA were surveillance and censorship bills that absolutely could not get passed, that people blacked out the Internet, whatever. And what they did instead, in my observation, I don't want to put words in your mouth, is they went through and there were little false flags or big false flags that that created what I call a crisis policy. They just would, there would be a crisis, crisis government, there would be a crisis and they would implement pieces of these different policies. They knew what false flags they needed to get support for one or another encroachment on our rights. I expect the Restrict Act to be like that. I don't expect it to pass. It's that banning TikTok act, but oh my gosh, have you read it? I have not read it, but... Oh my gosh. It's like, it's not that long. It's like eight pages and it is just like all all, uh, all legislation that might um, deliver accountability or transparency on the implementation of this bill is suspended, including FOIA. There's no recourse except for if you sue in the district, uh, the D.C. court of appeals on constitutional grounds alone and um gina raimondo is supposed to a priori just investigate every single solitary thing on the internet and <laughs> pick winners and losers basically it's a nutso thing i don't think it's going to pass because it's so crazy but what i do expect is for them to for there to be highly publicized incidents that justify one or another of the elements there. So I feel like they'll, they take this stuff, they work out the kinks, they know exactly what they want to implement. They can figure out how to get us to accept it. But if it's buggy, you're really not going to accept it. If it's not really going to work. So I feel like they debug it abroad and then they bring it home. Anyway. Yeah. I, I think it's great analysis. Yeah. yeah you're, you're right. That's what I think is happening. And you know, I just, as a story and I could see how that, has gone on for a long time, yeah. Uh, yes, I think so. And I, I did want to just address Bill Bob's comment that Jim Caviezel was working for the man. I love Jim Caviezel. I don't understand why he did that show. Maybe in his mind it was a warning and he felt like that was okay. So I forgive him for it. Uh, but uh, wow, so I kept you over a little bit, but that was great because we covered all three of these articles I was interested in. I actually picked eight articles from the last time we talked. So I'm going to direct people to just your name and the website covertactionmagazine.com. I just click on the Jeremy Kuzmarov articles. I click on your name and they all cascade down. I'm going to put show notes in the notes on monicasdeepdives.com for this episode, which will include a couple of books that you mentioned, Railroads, Policing American Empire. Um, uh, I'm going to put my Yemen article. And I even had, I did a, uh, 
and a little show on those Chechen snipers at the Maidan. Like they came out and talked openly about it, about Ameri- an American guy who was helping them. I think they were Georgian. They were, and one was, uh, there was one guy, Brian Boyanger, who yes. had been in Iraq and was probably CIA. Oh, yeah. And he was just, you know, had big bags of guns and people like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm a musician. Yeah. <laughs> and he was, I mean, sure. he was stepping over bodies and stuff. like it was a really crazy story. So I'm going to put all that stuff in the show notes. Is there anything you want to tell people um, to watch out for something coming up for you or a little bit about how they can support Covert Action magazine, what your mission is, anything? Uh, sure, yeah. You can go to my website at jeremykuzmarov.com or Covert Action Magazine at www.covertactionmagazine.com. And if you can subscribe to our magazine, that would help us greatly. And we're also yeah, always looking for writers and new story ideas. So you can email me, jkuzmarov2 at gmail.com. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Jeremy Kuzmarov, for joining us today. And thank you all for listening. This has been a live dive on Deep Dives with Monica Perez. 